0: episode is brought to you by Fangoria Magazine. This year, Fangoria Magazine is turning 40 years old and celebrating accordingly. If you haven't checked out the latest Fangoria issues, prepare to be blown away. It's now a deluxe 100 page quarterly edition with glossy thick pages and articles and interviews that will never be published online. The only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because the experience deserves to be a surprise. But We can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page. They're definitely celebrating their 40th in style. Head over to Fangoria.com and learn more and subscribe today. You can use promo code NIGHTMARE to get 15% off your subscription. So head over to Fangoria.com and use promo code NIGHTMARE for 15% off your new subscription. Hello, and welcome to Nightmare University on the Fangoria Podcast Network. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca McKendry, and thank you all so much for tuning in to the first episode of our second season. I debated how best to kick this season off. Should I do some type of giant film discussion or should I bring in a giant guest? I decided to do neither. And instead, I decided to um, kick off more of the Halloween season with one of my favorite topics to discuss, and that's the history of haunted houses. Um, Many years ago, when I was director of marketing at Fangoria, we decided to do a special edition, a special Fangoria edition that was just centered on haunted houses around America. And I'll say haunted attractions. These are not actual haunted structures that allegedly have ghosts in them. These are haunted attractions around America. And while we were putting this issue together, I got to travel to a ton of different haunted attractions all over the US, which I'll talk about in a later episode. But my favorite part of the entire special edition haunted house issue was that I got to write this essay on the history of haunted houses. And so I got to do all of this extensive research into the history of haunted attractions, kind of how they evolved throughout history and and where their roots lie. And uh, so this came out and And then a couple of months later, I got um, contacted by, I'll just say, a well-known big box department store who invited me to come talk to their um, annual corporate shareholders meeting and talk about Halloween season and the history of haunted houses and kind of the history of Halloween across the board. And while I was there, I learned um, two major things. And this was just a couple of years ago that I got to do this. I learned that Halloween is booming. So once I was there and I was talking to these other um, shareholders and meeting with people of this big box store, and I was just there to talk about the history of Halloween and kind of educate them on the importance of celebrating it. But I quickly learned that Halloween is booming, even just compared to what how we were celebrating Halloween 10 years ago. We are doing so much more now. And so many people are taking part of it and it really has transitioned over, I'll say the past three decades from a kid's holiday into an adult one um, where adults are actually doing far more for Halloween now than kids are a lot of the time where kids will get dressed up and go get candy. But for adults... We now have a list of things that we do where we'll go to haunted houses or haunted experiences or we'll go on hayrides or we'll have parties or really kind of decorate out the house. And with that, while there, I also learned that Halloween is huge business for a lot of these giant stores. And so it started me thinking about kind of why this was happening, why just within the past couple of decades had Halloween really exploded as a business and I still have a couple of different theories about this which we'll get into throughout um, the episode but in addition to kind of you know the business side of Halloween exploded, haunts have exploded as well and also haunted experiences all within the past couple of decades. Currently in the United States alone there are about 1300 professional haunted houses. There's about 300 theme parks that operate horror themed events during Halloween And there's about 3,000 charity-run haunted events. Additionally, and this is a newer number, there are 2,300 escape rooms. And this has all happened just within the last decade that escape rooms have really taken off. And I tried to get a number, kind of a broad number, on how many different haunted experiences these are. And these include kind of like the reality experiences, which we'll talk about, um, as well as some of the more extreme haunt experiences. And I was not able to get... kind of a firm number because at this point they are so varied that from what I could find people who are actually trying to theorize about these experiences are having problems categorizing them because they are so widely varied as to what they offer. Is it a theatrical experience? Is it like an invasive um, personal experience? They're all so widely varied, um, but there's a lot of them. So, what we are talking about tonight is haunted houses as in um, these are structures with faked scares I'm not exactly going to be talking about um, ghost tours or anything like that with the questionable real scares or the questionable real ghosts these are fake haunted houses where you walk from room to room and we will also delve a little bit into some of the more haunted experiences that have come out over the past um, decade or so Um, we are seeing these new immersive of experiences that are kind of blurring the lines i've lost track of how many we have just in la alone we've got delusion creep la alone the tension experience there are so many of these that are all different and wonderful and weird many of them are scavenger hunts some infiltrate your entire lives plus again we're seeing this rise in escape room So knowing that all of this has kind of just really, um, you know, blossomed within the past decade that we are seeing all of these crazy haunted immersive experiences, as well as escape rooms, as well as a boom of haunted houses, what we can conclude from all of this is that society really likes to have the shit scared out of it. We really want to push ourselves. We really want to feel real fears. We reached a point where movies are great and we all love movies. But when it comes to Halloween time, we are all seeking something a little bit more um, invasive into our lives, something a little bit more um, tactile that we can actually experience in the room. And our love of being scared is by no means a recent phenomenon. Um, And I'll start by saying that part of my love of looking back at the history of haunted houses gets into my love of theatrics. Um, Back when I I originally started in college, I started as a theater major, partly because I love the idea of theatrics. I love the idea of how um, theater is presented in the idea of trickery and magic on stage and how you create various effects. And a lot of this comes out in haunted house history, like how effects kind of evolved over time. So I'll be talking a good bit about kind of how special effects evolved along with haunted houses. Um, But haunted attractions have a long history that dates all the way back to our earliest civilizations. Um, It probably goes back even later than this, but I'm going to start with some of our earliest documented examples of what I will call fake terrors. And that would be with the Egyptians. The Egyptians knew that if you wanted to keep body snatchers away from a pyramid, the best way to do it was to absolutely scare the hell out of them. And so when the Egyptians were designing pyramids, they designed them with these kind of built in scares, mazes, moving walls, self-opening doors, traps, um, the use of snakes and insects were completely commonplace all to preserve treasures and dead folks granted they were not exactly charging admission for these scares and the public was not lining up for this but it is one of our earliest examples of humans crafting devices purely intended to scare the crap out of other humans the Greeks and Romans also unknowingly kind of seeded the path for haunted attractions as well as their folklore was rich with mazes and labyrinths and filled with monsters. Plus, the Romans did love bloodshed. And this was not just limited to their feeding um, people to the lions and wolves publicly as a punishment. They did this regularly. It was called dimnasio ad bestia. But their kind of love of bloodshed bled into their theater as well theater was a vital part of both Greek and Roman cultures, and it stands to reason that these ancients um, began devising rudimentary special effects to represent their monsters and beasts on stage. So they eventually pioneered a number of theatrical devices that would evolve into spooky elements that some of which we use today. Um, The Romans and Greeks included in their theater things like fog, trap doors, um, even faking blood and gore. They actually created a lot of different devices that ended up still being used in kind of creating ghostly apparitions on stage Um, including the deus ex machina which was used to make people fly and then they also had this wonderful thing called the ex which was a platform that they would slide across the stage to reveal dead bodies so that the audience could like really see them well So though the Greek and Roman theater was definitely full of bloodshed and gore and all types of horrific elements, by the time we get to the Dark Ages, all of that kind of um, theater kind of fell to the wayside. But we're still seeing small amounts of theater, which leads to the evolution of the haunted house. And this is in the form of pageant plays. During the Dark Ages, life sucks. There's war, there's famine, there's disease, there's little art or even organization for that matter. But we get these preachy theatricals that are traveling through the countryside going from town to town. And during this time, which was from around the 1300s to the 1500s, Europe had recently been converted from Celtic and pagan religions to the practice of Christianity. And pageant wagons toured the land performing plays and preaching the word of God. These were mostly biblical and they were acted out, but In order to keep everybody enticed, they really played up the scarier parts. They were ultimately intended to frighten the masses into staying pious, and the attendees enjoyed the scares and the gore right along with the moral lessons. Additionally, this era began the evolution of Halloween as we know it today. Though the holiday Halloween was ultimately born out of the Celtic and pagan religions, the masses in Europe carried its practices with them as they converted over to Christianity. So things like carving, well it wasn't pumpkins at the time but carving things, bobbing for apples, um dressing up in costume, even trick or treating going door to door or playing tricks, these were all part of the original pagan practices that kind kind of bled over into Halloween as we know it today. Now, I mentioned that people didn't originally carve pumpkins. Originally, because we are in Europe, people carved turnips to represent spirits and demons on Halloween. And they would hang up these carved root vegetables outside their home on Halloween night to protect their home from any stray spirits wandering around. When European settlers came over to America, they didn't find a lot of turnips, but what they did find was a ridiculous amount of pumpkins growing in the New World. And the pumpkins were much easier to carve, and thus this is why we carve pumpkins for Halloween now. Even as we move Into the Middle Ages. We still continue with the preachy religious plays, but we see this thing called the Hell Mouth be created. And this is this giant opening on stage, which was supposed to represent this descent into hell. And they were very elaborate. So we're still kind of seeing. This theatrical horror happening. Then we move into the Renaissance. And then we really start to see a lot of special effects blossom. Society's love of horror and the development of special effects continue as theater becomes increasingly popular. Ghosts, demons, devils, other monsters make regular appearance in plays, including those of William Shakespeare. And the Renaissance theater goers absolutely loved a good horror story. So we see a lot of them. We see Marlowe and Faust. And this Faust story um, had been told over and over, but Marlowe had brought it to stage. And having demons on stage was somehow wonderful and tantalizing. Shakespeare had his own horrors inserted in. Macbeth had the witches. Hamlet has his ghost. And then he also had Titus Andronicus, which I consider to be one of the most horrific stories of all time. Um, Eventually, Puritanical Rule shut down a lot of the theater that was going on during the Renaissance, but not before we were able to really, really forward the art of gore. During the Renaissance times, if you wanted to stab somebody on stage, the audience was going to want to see the gore. So actors actually used to strap pig bladders to their midsection and the opposing actor would stab the bladder and then the pig's blood would pour out, making it look as if the actor was bleeding to death on stage. And I always heard legend that occasionally people would miss and actually get stabbed. I was not able to find any documentation of that, but it just kind of ups the ante on the gory scenes of somebody actually being stabbed and plus you have to think about strapping pig bladders to yourself knowing that some actor on stage is going to stab you with a knife it had to have been terrifying for the actors as well fast forward a bit we're going to move into the 1800s People during the 1800s become absolutely enthralled with ghosts and the possibility of other realms. And a lot of this was because of our own technological advancements. We had kind of harnessed electricity and we're really starting to mess around with that. We were messing around with photography. Film was in its infancy. And because we had started kind of harnessing these technologies, immediately society's mind went to, well, can you stop death? And so all of a sudden there was this massive interest in mediums and fortune tellers and spiritualists and conjuring sessions to communicate with the dead became a form of entertainment for the elite. And many clairvoyants became renowned celebrities who were paid top dollar to supposedly read your fortune. Magician Harry Houdini actually set out to disprove these practices and debunked many famous spiritualists during the time period. So in addition to all of this kind of fascination with what could be on the other side and can you contact the other side, we also get the practice of galvanism. And galvanism was a practice during the 1800s that eventually led Mary Shelley to write Frankenstein. And this was when um, people would wheel corpses out into the middle of the public square and they would charge a fee for everybody to watch them shock the corpse. They would hook up electrodes and they would actually shock the corpse with jolts of electricity. And of course, then it would jump. It would jump around. And the doctors or whoever was doing this would claim, oh, my gosh, see, we have been able to bring it back. We have brought life after death. We have reanimated the dead with these electric shocks. And, of course, they hadn't. They were just electrocuting muscles, creating short amount of muscle jerks. But seeing this is what led Mary Shelley to write Frankenstein, which was first published in 1818. We also have public autopsies going on during this time, both in medical schools and also sometimes in the middle of town squares. So in general, we have kind of this societal obsession with afterlife and death. And with this, we also see kind of a haunt theme path continue in theater including the invention of the Pepper's Ghost created by John Pepper. And this was a device that used mirrors and glass reflecting against each other and it made people appear to be translucent apparitions on stage. The device was known as Pepper's Ghost. It is still being used today in Disney's Haunted Mansion. It's how we see those kind of ghostly apparitions dancing around on the ballroom floor. It's also how Tupac appeared dancing on stage with Dr. Dre Snoop Dogg in the 2012 Coachella show. And so this thing, the Pepper's Ghost, is still being used today. The 1800s also saw the opening of the first wax museum. And this was really paving the way for kind of a walkthrough attraction that played with everyone's sense of reality. And then within a couple of decades, we see it turn into even something more. By the early 1900s, the beginning of the 20th century, we see the height of the traveling carnival. And with it, we see the rise of the sideshow, or, and I apologize for this term, the traveling freak show. Patrons would walk through these attraction looking at human deformities and other oddities many of them faked and these traveling shows also begin to flirt with different horror experiences including fortune tellers and mind readers and seances a few of them also began to include very rudimentary fun houses a few years into the century and dark rides also became popular amusement attractions And dark rides, which we still have today, this is ultimately what Disney's Haunted Mansion and what a lot of the Disney rides are. A dark ride is where patrons sit on a boat or a train or some type of automatic moving machine, and it moves them through various scenes. The best known variation of this is likely the Tunnel of Love, but if we think about Disney's Haunted Mansion, it's still a dark ride. As amusement parks and family fun centers kind of sprang up all over the nation, many could not afford big roller coasters. So, some offered cheap fun houses and rudimentary haunted houses to pull in patrons. These were often mazes that included mirrors and buzzers and ladders and different uh, pathways that you had to try to squeeze through, but ultimately they were there for the thrill and the act of confusing patrons. Around this same time, many of the residential houses built during the 1800s had become worn down and dilapidated. And to prevent children from exploring these buildings, adults would often say that ghosts inhabited these neglected homes, further fueling kind of the mystique of these mysterious haunted dwellings, which is why around this time period, we start to associate Gothic Victorian architecture with with hauntings. The first ever recorded haunted attraction, which I put in quotes was the Orton and Spooner ghost house, which opened in 1915 in the United kingdom as part of the Edwardian fair. At this time, we also have the Grand Gignol in France, which was scaring audiences nightly with graphic staged horror entertainment. I absolutely love the history of the Grand Gignol and that itself could be an entire episode and may well someday. But the Grand Gignol was um, a theater that existed in Paris, France, and it would do these nightly um shows, but the ultimate end game of it was to discuss the audiences. So it would have a show about someone being tortured and then you would watch them be tortured on stage and they would show you them pulling out eyeballs and just doing all types of heinous stuff much of it looking very fake but they really did try like a lot of the kind of special effect innovations that they were doing during the Grand Gignol were really smart and clever Um, the best way I could compare it to is kind of like a stage show of like Herschel Gordon Lewis's Wizard of Gore where it's just kind of these atrocities lined up one after another on stage actually Herschel Gordon Lewis himself would probably take pride in me calling him the Grand Gignol of filmmakers Um, but they were also well-known for their famous posters. They had these absolutely horrific posters, historically um, just beautiful. And uh, interesting fact, the fake blood used at the Grand Gignol um, because I've also been fascinated about kind of how fake blood has uh, changed over time and like what we use for recipes today versus when it started. Fake blood of the Grand Gignol was made of soap and bugs. It consisted in equal parts of glycerin, which is like a clear vegetable soap, and carmine, which is bright red pigment made by boiling and crushing specific types of beetles. So you were actually getting covered with like liquefied beetles when you were getting covered in blood at the Grand King Knoll but they were looking for something that was super bright red so by this time moving into the 1960s haunted houses had become commonplace at boardwalks and amusement parks all across America 1969 saw the opening of Disneyland's Haunted Mansion, and the first grim grinning ghosts that came out to socialize included a sea captain, a ghostly wedding party, transforming portraits, and a headless horseman. The haunted house was part of Disney's plan for the park long before Disneyland was ever built in 1955. Even though that the actual haunt was not built till 69, when he submitted pre-construction artist renderings, you can see in the background a rundown mansion and a graveyard. It's overlooking Main Street and kind of the original artistic renderings for the park. Once it came around time to build it, Walt Disney did not like the idea of putting this old, decrepit looking structure in the middle of this beautiful park. So he visited all of these different attractions around the U.S., all of these different kind of fear-inducing or haunted attractions around the U.S., and he ended up drawing the biggest inspiration from San Jose's Winchester Mystery House. The Winchester Mystery House, um, which you can find lots of information on online, is this absolutely lavish mansion where Sarah Winchester, the resident, thought that if she ever stopped constructing the mansion that the spirits inside would attack her. And so it's this massive, lavish, pristine mansion. And this was what he used for his biggest inspiration for his haunted mansion, plopping it down in the middle of his New Orleans Square. Originally, customers were supposed to walk through the Haunted Mansion, but the park staff had problems with people keeping their pace and keeping the line steadily moving because everybody wanted to stop and look at everything. So eventually, it became a dark ride with patrons sitting down in trains known as doom buggies that carried them throughout the haunt at a steady pace. And the Haunted Mansion has changed over time. Sometimes it gets a little bit scarier. Sometimes they make it a bit more family friendly. But over time, the characters in the Haunted Mansion have definitely gained their own cult following. Madame Leota, the Hat Bucks, Ghost, even the actual wallpaper hanging in the house has kind of its own cult following. Disney is celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Haunted Mansion um, this month and uh, I was just there a couple of days ago and they've got it all decked out for Nightmare Before Christmas and whether it's in Nightmare Before Christmas stage or in the regular Haunted Mansion phase it is by far my happy place. I absolutely love the Haunted Mansion. So let's move into the 1970s. As I was doing interviews with all of these many, many haunted attraction owners when we were creating that Fango Special Edition so long ago, the one thing that I remember is all of these older generations of haunted house owners telling me that their first spooky attraction experience was courtesy of the J.C.'s Charity. Short for the United States Junior Chamber of Commerce, this was a young civic group and leadership training organization. In 1976, it had its membership peak, and at the time, it boasted around 350,000 members, all men between the ages of 18 and 35. The JCs encouraged its members to put up haunted houses in their hometowns using abandoned buildings or fields as a way to raise money. And the organization became so known for these haunts that in 1975, two men from the Bloomington, Illinois chapter, Jim Gold and Tom Hillegoss, decided to write a book on how to create a haunted house. They detailed using makeup effects, scene ideas and marketing strategies. They ended up selling over 20,000 copies and gold and Hilligrass became the first ever haunted house experts. The two went on to form the haunted house company, which was one of the first outfits to sell effects, mask, lighting, costumes, and marketing materials all in one place. They also created one of the first ever Santa village attractions for Christmas time. So during the 1970s, these JC haunted houses would pop up in small towns all over America. And many of the haunted house owners that I spoke with remembered these and said that these were their first influence, that going to these haunted houses or making them and being part of them was what really fueled their love of horror and creating haunted attractions. As horror movies grew in popularity during the 1980s, so did haunted houses, and most amusement parks during this decade had some type of scary attraction. I myself remember the haunted house at the Ocean City Boardwalk and can even recite the themes of the rooms in order I went through it so many times. This is also when haunted house safety became a much larger issue. In 1984, the haunted castle at Six Flags Great Adventure in New Jersey caught fire and killed eight patrons inside. This set off huge alarm bells across the entire haunted house industry about the importance of safety in building materials, in emergency awareness, and in how to get people out in the event that there is some type of emergency. Haunted houses were entirely reshaped to preserve the artificial scares, but to maintain Maintain The highest level of safety possible, ensuring that an absolute tragedy like this would never happen again. Now, most haunted houses go through rigorous safety precautions for insurance, fire safety and other codes. Most haunted house cons feature just as many seminars on safety precautions on how to scare people. And a fantastic safety record is something that good haunted house owners are just as proud of as their actual scares. By the time we move into the 1990s, on through the present, haunts are everywhere. And they're not just limited to houses. There's haunted hayrides and mazes and scavenger hunts, And these pop up all over the place every Halloween. And some places have ones that happen year after year. And then other ones have ones that travel around. Different charity groups put them on. Most of us have been to multiple attractions. And for many people, this is their first taste of horror. They may not be horror movie fans exactly. Exactly. But they go through some type of haunted attraction and discover the thrill of being scared that it has some benefit to it and that it makes them feel good. And therefore they try out horror films after that. These have become so popular that Halloween enthusiasts, also known as home haunters, started creating their own attractions at home simply for the love of doing it. In Los Angeles, we have dozens of these people that set up haunted attractions in their own lawns and garages and don't charge or just ask for donations just because they love doing this so much. The growing success of the theme parks during Halloween has led to a lot of amazing events, including Universal Halloween Horror Nights headed by John Murdy. Every single year, they pull out all the stops and put on an amazing show. Disney now goes all out for Halloween and Not Scary Farm has really kind of elevated itself to the top over the past couple of years, really bringing out a lot of scares as well. Additionally, we've seen increased haunted experiences and escape rooms. And the experiences and escape rooms are by no means limited to Halloween, though they seem to definitely get a little bit more elevation during this time. Additionally, haunted houses are getting more and more elaborate all the time, always looking for new rooms and new themes. Every single time I go to visit some of the haunted houses that I went to 10 years ago when we were first creating the Fangoria Special Edition, they've changed everything around, always trying to outdo themselves and always trying to give the guests a new, fantastic visceral and psychological experience. Experience And as these haunted houses, haunted attractions and haunted experiences keep evolving, I'm glad that it seems that they are here to stay and that the industry will only continue to grow into more terrifying directions. And as we leave, I'm going to leave you with some fantastic documentaries to check out. The first one is Haunters, The Art of the Scare, directed by John Schnitzer. This delves into the idea of extreme haunted experiences. Um, You definitely need to see it to believe it, but kind of the idea of subjecting yourself to safe yet potentially dangerous environments in the sake of a scare. Um, The next one is The American Scream, directed by Michael Stevenson. This is a fantastic and heartwarming documentary about the home haunters that I mentioned, the people who just set up haunted attractions in their own homes or on their own yard just for the love of it Um, Hell House LLC is from 2001 directed by George Ratliff this is about um, what some churches do, where they will set up um, haunted attractions within the church, showing different forms of sin. And so, even though that it's a it's a little bit different than what we think of as a traditional haunted house, they still have these intense scares and the intense moments. Um, and it's a fascinating documentary. And then I'm also going to plug one fiction film, um, which I just find fun, and it definitely puts me in the mood to go through a haunted house. And this is Hell House LLC from two. Two thousand fifteen, um, directed by Stephen Cognetti. And this is a found footage film. Low budget, but super well done about a group of people who buy a supposedly haunted house to turn it into a haunted attraction and then discover that they're not the only ones there. And um, it's just a wonderful little found footage film um, that always puts me in the mood to go into haunted houses. And so, as you get ready to do your Halloween uh, season, please definitely check out all of the haunted houses and attractions near you. Don't keep your love of horror limited to the screen. Get out there and experience experience some haunted attractions happy haunting well, you, think you know how to wake the dead. you think you've heard the call you think you're an Nightmare University is a Fangoria Podcast Network original produced and hosted by Rebecca McKendry, producer Natasha Pecetta, executive producers Dallas Sonnier and Phil Nobile Jr., associate producer Jessica Safavimer, art and design by Ashley Detmering, sound recording, design, and mixing by David McKendry, music by The Serpentines, for Fangoria, Brandon Winerdi, Jason Koslerich, and Rachel Wilson.